Amen. Let's pray together before we consider this passage. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this beautiful morning. Uh, thank you for this beautiful place, uh, the earth in which you've given us to live here in uh, Signal Mountain and in Washington and all the beautiful places. Uh, and thank you for giving us the community and fellowship of the church and your own self. Pray that you would be with us this morning as we consider this word, as we consider your nature and what it uh, means to have been created in your image. I pray that you would renew us uh, with a sense of joy uh, and delight in who you are and longing uh, for what you are doing in the world uh, through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, in the year 1900, uh, there was a young man named William Remington uh, who grew up in the county north of Liverpool uh, in England, uh, just south of the Lake District. Uh, he was uh, the oldest of a family of seven or eight children. And uh, in those days, times were hard in England. And at the age of 16, uh, William, on his own, came to the conclusion uh, that his family did not have enough resources uh, to provide for themselves and for all the children. And so in very British fashion, uh, without consulting with his parents, he decided that it was time for him to provide for himself and, if possible, for the rest of the family. And uh, so, again, without telling his parents, one day he journeyed south uh, down to Liverpool and booked himself passage on an ocean liner uh, to the New World. Uh, sailed across the ocean and arrived in Canada. And uh, we're not exactly sure what happened next uh, from history, but we know within a month or so he had made his way all the way across the country out to the west coast in British Columbia, which is uh, like the one place equally uh, dark and rainy as Liverpool. And uh, not finding work there, uh, he journeyed south across the border into Washington and found a job cutting down trees in a logging camp. And uh, being one of the younger guys at 16 in the logging camp, when the foreman of the logging camp uh, had errands to send and needed to send somebody into town with a message or to get something fixed or repaired, uh, it was often William uh, that he sent into town. And it was on one of these errands when William got sent to the blacksmith shop that he was sitting in the corner of the shop while the blacksmith is fashioning or repairing something from the logging camp, uh, that he began thinking to himself about how wet and cold it was outside and how warm and dry it was in the blacksmith shop. And so he asked the blacksmith if he would teach him his trade. And the blacksmith agreed, and so over the course of the next year, he repeatedly returned over and over again and was gradually apprenticed in the art of smithing, being a blacksmith, and eventually resigned from the logging camp and moved to a small town on the Washington coast called South Bend and set up a blacksmith shop there called the Willapa Bay Ironworks and spent the rest of his life uh, in that town working in his blacksmith shop. Uh, he got married. He had five children, uh, the oldest of which, like his father before him, uh, left town at 18 and basically never came back. And his daughter is my mom. Uh, so that's how my people made it here to the new world. Um, in America, I think we often like to think that we are more or less self-made people that we are not judged by what our fathers did, but on our own merits, and we sort of decide who we're going to be and what we're going to value and uh, what we're going to be like. And that's true and also not true. Uh, that like it or not, all of us are shaped 
by the story that we are a part of, uh, by the heritage that we come from. The more I pieced together my great-grandfather's story, the more it helped me understand how everyone in my extended family really loves British comfort foods, like eggs fried in bacon grease and potato and leek soup. Uh, And it also helped me understand this pattern we have of oldest children leaving home and uh, not coming back. Uh, The Bible presents itself to us as history, and and part of that is it presents itself to us as our history as human beings. That uh, missionary Leslie Newbegin uh, once described the Bible as an alternative world history set in the, uh, that sets the human story in cosmic frame between creation and consummation. Uh, so the Bible is telling the story of where human beings come from. And uh, I, I believe this is actually real history. And if you have questions about that, there are good questions to be asked. And I'm sure that uh, Jimmy or any of the elders here would be happy to talk to, with you about that. Um, but if you could take it as it were for a minute that this is our history as humanity. I want to ask for a second the question of what does this mean for us, not just as Christians, but as human beings, that if all of us were made in the beginning in God's image, what does that tell us about who we are? Uh, We're going to take a look at uh, three specific aspects of that this morning, and the first one is that if human beings are made in God's image, as we hear in Genesis 1, uh, here in the garden, That means that all of us, we are made for a relationship with God. That uh, in this passage, we see a picture of God creating this garden. And then on the last day, as the sort of the final crowning gesture of his creation, he creates humans, uh, man and woman, and puts them in a garden that is in every way fitting for their needs. And, And we hear two chapters later that Adam and Eve actually heard God walking with them in the garden, in the cool of the day. Uh, It gives us this picture of the relationship between Adam and Eve and God where they can walk together face to face as you might walk along a path with a friend and connect and catch up. Um, We see uh, at the end of the Bible, in in Revelation 21, it says this, uh, the Apostle John is writing about this vision that the Lord gives him of the end of all things. And he writes this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In other words, at the very beginning of the Bible, we see this picture of God and human beings dwelling together in peace and close uh, relationship. And at the end of the Bible, at the end of all things, we see this picture of God dwelling with man, with them as their God, that he himself is the light uh, for the day and the fellowship with him, that this is a theme of the entire Bible, that it is uh, one of God's goals to, uh, to create us, that he might live with us uh, as our God, that um, when you desire in your heart to be more closely connected with the Lord uh, than you are, to, to walk with him, to converse with him, to, as John did at the Last Supper, to recline against his side, uh, that that is what you are made for. Uh, now, the fall, a couple chapters later, uh, distorts that and breaks up that relationship and creates distance. Uh, and since that time, uh, for all of us, 
there should be, I believe, in our spirituality a sense of longing that never entirely goes away, that we could and really should have more connection uh, with the Lord uh, than we do now, that we are made uh, to dwell with Him. Um, there is, uh, in this present life, uh, the Lord at work, um, still with us, that we can uh, experience Him uh, through prayer, uh, through reading His Word, uh, and through worshiping together on a Sunday morning, that there's a sense in which when we gather together here on Sunday morning, we experience and connect with God in a way that we can in no other time, that His presence is with us, and if the Holy Spirit dwells in His people, uh, that you're here with all these other people, God being present in them, uh, connecting with Him, and yet it's, uh, it's not fully the way that it will be at the end. Uh, so we're made for relationship with God. Uh, one of the work, outworkings of this is that uh, we will always inevitably worship something. That being made for relationship with God means being made for worship. And um, in your life, it, well, so in the garden, uh, the Lord creates this garden that is uh, it's beautiful. It, it provides them comfort and security, and uh, ultimately they have connection with God and significance and relationship with Him. And so since that time, whatever it is in your life that you think provides you the most beauty or significance or comfort or safety, uh, you, will, you will worship that thing uh, with your time, with your thoughts, uh, with your money. You will uh, orient your life around that thing, and ultimately um, that's what we're made for, to have that kind of relationship with God. Uh, in Washington, as perhaps here, hiking is a big thing. When I was in college, I went hiking a lot. And uh, north of Seattle a little bit, there's this uh, mountain called Mount Pilchuck that is a, is a day hike uh, to the top. And at the top, there's this old uh, forestry lookout. And inside, there's an ammunition case with a little log book. A lot of uh, mountaintops have something like this where you get to the top and you can open it up and write down in there, uh, write your name. And... Uh, one of the things that always fascinated me about climbing to the top of these mountains is to read what people write inside the logbook. And you would think, after having climbed all day to get to the top uh, with your little body, that uh, what you would write is something about how amazing you are and strong and productive, and yet no one writes about that. Uh, what do people write in these logbooks? Spectacular view! amazing day, so incredible. It's just sort of this log of, of people's uh, just overwhelming joy and amazement at, at the beauty around them. Uh, and there's a sense in which, as human beings, uh, Christian or otherwise, that when we come in contact with something supremely beautiful, it's almost impossible for us to not worship and give praise. So being made in God's image, uh, we're made for relationship with Him. Uh, well, we're also made for relationship with others. And we're made for relationship with others because we're made in God's image, and God himself is a relationship. Uh, the fancy uh, term we have for this is Trinity, which means that God is one God and yet three persons. And those three persons, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, they enjoy one another. 
and they uh, love one another and desire to serve one another. Uh, I picked this reading from John 17 in part because it's one of these amazing places in the Bible where we can actually get to listen into the members of the Trinity having a conversation with each other. And the Father has delighted to create this plan that gives the Son glory. And uh, Jesus, though nervous about going to the cross, delights to serve the Father and providing for salvation and honoring His Father. And the Holy Spirit, working in the background, loves to serve them both by applying it to our hearts. And the three of them are working together, uh, loving and serving one another. And so being made in his image means uh, to be like that, to be made for relationship with other people. Uh, We see that in this passage in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1. Uh, There's all this prose, and then in my Bible, perhaps in your Bible, verse 27 is sort of bracketed off, and and that's because it's a little one-verse piece of poetry says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And uh, Hebrew poetry works a little bit different than English poetry. There's not a, uh, a rhyming scheme and there's not always meter. But what you do is you repeat the same thought, but you change out the words uh, showing connection between different thoughts. And so the idea is here, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so to be made in the image of God is actually the same thing as being made male and female. That uh, we don't get the full image of God without male and female, thankfully. Uh, And so in Adam and Eve's case, this connection of being made male and female works itself out in the relationship of marriage. But I think the implication here is much broader, that we're made for relationship, uh, we're made in God's image, we're made male and female, and we're made for connection uh, with each other. We know from history, unfortunately, that human beings that are provided uh, everything that they need, food, uh, warmth, clothing, and, and yet don't have connection with other human beings, are often end up um, profoundly distorted and or passing away. Uh, During the Cold War, they had a series of orphanages uh, in Ukraine and Russia, and oftentimes these children, uh, rejected by their parents, rejected by the world, oftentimes because of some disability, were provided uh, with food and warmth and shelter, and yet the one thing that they didn't have was interaction with other human beings. Uh, And most of them passed away simply from lack of connection with people. That um, you will not survive uh, without being connected with other people. Now, just like in being made for a relationship with God, being made for relationship with others, the fall distorts that. And so for all of us, there's a sense of brokenness and longing in our relationships. Um, I have, in my short time in ministry, known... Uh, several adult men who struggle with same-sex attraction and yet embrace uh, what we might call the historic Christian teaching, what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics, that you are not to have a same-sex sexual relationship. Uh, And for them, living out this life of having these desires— uh, that they that will not be met in this present life oftentimes comes with a profound sense of loneliness uh, because um, 
it wouldn't be appropriate for them to have deep personal relationships with women uh, if it's not going to sort of lead to marriage, and yet it's they're uh, afraid of others or oftentimes afraid of themselves and so have a tendency to isolate themselves from friendships with men in the church. Um, one of my friends in particular in another state has said that he's learned a couple things. One, that uh, there's tremendous power in just grieving. That in this life, he has an emptiness that will not go away. And he trusts the Lord enough to know that somehow in his providence, at the end of the age, that the Lord has more than enough to fill up all his desires, and yet that's not going to happen now. And at the same time, there is a way for him to uh, experience connection with other people and, and be healthy by involvement and friendship in the church and having meals with families and being part of a small group. And uh, Jonathan is incredibly inspiring to me in part because in some sense, that's a picture of all of us. That we were not made uh, for disconnected relationships Uh, for broken and awkward family reunions, uh, for loneliness. Uh, We were made to be closely and peacefully connected with one another. And and that our relationships, all of them, come with this sense of longing that there really ought to be something more than this. And there will be at the end of the age when the Lord restores all things. Uh, So we're made for relationship with the Lord. We're made for relationship with each other. Uh, Finally, uh, we're made for relationship with the land. Uh, that we see here in this passage, we get our piece of poetry in verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So here's the verse right before that. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then we get our little verse of poetry, verse 27. And then here's the verse after that. Listen to this. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thought. So you get this piece of poetry about being made in the image of God, being made male and female, and right before it, you get a verse about having dominion and caring for the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and right after it, you get another verse about the same thing. So again, this is kind of how Hebrew poetry works, uh, that you put the most important thought in the center, and then you put uh, a connected thought, a closely connected thought, immediately before it and after it. And so that means that there's a connection, a close connection between being made in God's image and being made uh, to have dominion over the land. Uh, And really, in a sense, to work. That it was Adam and Eve's job uh, to care and tend for the garden, and yet all of us as human beings, Christian and non-Christian, have been sent out in the world to work productively. And so if we look at the way that God works, it will tell us a little bit about the way that we're to work, since we're made in his image. And uh, we see a few things about the way that God works. One, uh, he works with amazing creativity uh, and, and diversity, that the garden is this place overflowing with life and, uh, and provision of all these different kinds. Um, when I lived in Hawaii, I learned that there are over 22,000 kinds of orchids. Who does that? 
22,000 kinds of orchids that the Lord has this deep joy and desire and creativity. Look at this one. Isn't that one so cool? Here's another one. Check this one out. And he loves to just sort of turn out this diversity and, and creativity of life and all these different things that he has made. The Lord also works in a way that is a fitting uh, for life and flourishing, that the garden, as I've said, sort of met Adam and Eve's needs and uh, met the needs of the animals. And um, in these verses that we skipped for time in the uh, you know, third and fourth day, there's a lot of talk about seeds and trees and plants bringing forth seeds and keeping with their kinds. And uh, if you've been a Christian for a while and reading Genesis 1, that's usually the point where you sort of zone out. There's <laughs> a lot of seeds and kinds. And um, here's what I think is happening there. The Lord made every tree just the way that he needed to for it to flourish. Apple trees bring forth apples that make seeds that make more apple trees. And the fruit wrapped around them is enticing to animals, and so they eat it and carry the seeds around. And all of these creatures and animals and plants are made just the way they need to be to promote flourishing and life. And so in our work... We're called to bring our creativity uh, and our intelligence uh, to bear on the problems of the world, be they with the land or with education or with uh, steel and engineering or jet engines or whatever it is, uh, in such a way that promotes human flourishing. Again, since the fall, uh, this has been distorted and there's a sense in which everyone hates their job. Uh, But... All of us, Christian or non-Christian, have a longing somewhere down in your heart to have work that is meaningful and produces something beautiful for the world. Um, Bellingham is uh, an hour and a half north of Seattle, and I end up heading down to Seattle fairly frequently uh, to meet with people um, for various purposes, and we have our Presbyterian meeting down there sometimes. And so parallel to I-5, but on the water, is uh, this railroad. And so Amtrak runs a train from Vancouver, BC down to Oregon called the Amtrak Cascades. And why spend an hour and a half or two and a half hours, depending on traffic, in traffic when you could sort of sit uh, in a chair and watch Puget Sound go by and answer emails on your computer. And so as often as I can, I take the train from Bellingham down to Seattle. And uh, when you're headed south and you come into Seattle, the last thing that you do before you get to King Street Station is you go through this tunnel under downtown. And uh, I have a little bit of ADD, and so uh, once passing through this tunnel, I looked it up, and it's called the Great Northern Tunnel. It was built between 1903 and 1904. And before the tunnel was built, uh, Seattle's on a little bit of a hill, and then they filled in the first little bit of the bay, and so there's this flat spot there with all these docks. And before they built the tunnel, all of the railroad tracks went along the waterfront between town and the docks. And it got to the point where there were between six and eight tracks, and it was somewhat of a dangerous journey just to get from the city out to the waterfront. And so it actually wasn't the railroads, it was the engineer who worked for the city of Seattle who said, you know, we could probably put these things in a tunnel. And uh, you had two different companies involved. 
uh, Great Northern and Northern Pacific, and you can imagine how that has the potential to go. And so he met with both companies and convinced them on the project. They worked together, and for two years, engineers from the city, engineers from both railroads designed the tunnel, and men uh, dug from both ends and uh, met in the middle in 1904, completing what was then the widest and tallest railroad tunnel in the world so that two trains could go back and forth uh, at the same time. And the tunnel is there today, just as it was in 1904, with the same lining, still carrying goods and services and Amtrak cascades every day. Everyone involved in the construction of the tunnel has passed on. And yet everyone in Washington State, in one way or another, benefits from this thing that they gave us. Does that make sense? This, that each one of us has a chance in our lives, this calling, this is what we're made for, really, to create things of beauty that promote human flourishing. Uh, so we're made for relationship with God. We're made for relationship with others. Uh, we're made for relationship with the land. Um, what do we do with all this? Well, here's a couple thoughts uh, uh, to leave you with in closing, one of which is, uh, all of this stuff is true about every human being, Christian or non-Christian. So if you're a Christian, um, probably you interact every single day uh, or, and maybe have friendships with non-Christians around you. You live next to them, you work with them, uh, and you now know very three powerful things about them. Uh, you may not know their name or anything about them, but you know that uh, they're made for relationship with God. Uh, and there's some sort of sense of spiritual longing somewhere in there. You know that they are broken and lonely, uh, and they desire to have more fulfilling work than they have, and that those desires are good and beautiful and true, and that creates a profound basis uh, for respect, that uh, without knowing the Lord, they are still, though broken, made in His image, and there's remaining somewhere in there longing and beauty and glory of God's image. And it's a powerful basis on which to connect with them, uh, to respect the gifts that they bring, and to connect them with the larger story that we are all a part of. Uh, when we first moved into Bellingham, there's a family across the street from us uh, that has children about the same age as ours. And um, have any of you guys heard about the thing with the Standing Rock Indian Reservation? Um, so there's this, uh, there's this reservation in the Dakotas, and there's an oil pipeline, and there's some controversy about it. And uh, I didn't know any—I had to look it up. Uh, but so I moved into the neighborhood, and so we first met our neighbors, and they're walking up the street, the whole family, with these uh, stand with Standing Rock signs. Uh, and uh, we're like, hey, what's up? And um, uh, they say, we've, j we've just come from a protest downtown for the Standing Rock Reservation. It was our children's first protest. This gives you a little bit of a demographic category for Bellingham. Uh, so I had to go look up what they were protesting. Um, but I realized after the fact that um, whatever I think about what was happening in the Dakotas, part of what I should see is that Carrie, our neighbor, um, desired that the strong should not oppress the weak, 
Just like it says in the Old Testament, the book of Micah is mostly about that. That the strong should not oppress the weak, that resources should be wisely used, and to the best of her ability, she was using her power and authority to promote human flourishing. It's profoundly beautiful, if you can see it that way, and gives a a great basis uh, for connection. Uh, Secondly, for us as Christians, uh, I think paying attention to the longings of our heart. Uh, and especially the places that hurt the most for connection with God, for connection with other people, uh, for, uh, for connection with the land, that um, this is not the way that it was meant to be. That even Jesus, when asked about divorce, what was his response? He said, this is not the way that it was from the beginning. It's the reason that he gave. Uh, And so for us to connect with those longings and really to cultivate a sense of longing for something more than this in all of those areas gives you powerful insight, uh, one, into where we're headed and a sense of hope and also powerful insight into where the Lord is at work in your life now. Uh, If he gave you those longings, he is quite aware of them uh, and, and will use them in your life and mine Uh, to make us more like him and to fulfill us in the end. Um, One Christian author, uh, Christopher Wright, pointed out that oftentimes in evangelical Christianity, we begin the story of Christianity by saying, you're a sinner. And we end it uh, by saying that you need to make a decision for Jesus, both of which things are true, by the way. But then in telling the story that way, what we miss is the garden on both ends. Uh, and our calling to long for that. Uh, I'll end with this, that um, when I was in seminary, uh, studying to go into ministry, uh, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and Susie and I lived in this little apartment uh, in the city. And, uh, you know, the beauty of owning an apartment is that when something goes wrong, you can just, like, call the landlord and have him fix it because you don't own it. Um, and uh, something went wrong with the door. I can't remember what it was. And so we called up the landlord, and it was the springtime. It was one of those, like, two weeks a year when it's nice to be outside in St. Louis. And uh, so I was sitting on the front porch reading, and uh, the handyman's working on the front door. And so we get in this conversation, and he's wondering what I'm doing. And, well, I'm going to seminary and thinking about being a pastor. And he says, this is amazing. I became a Christian like two weeks ago. And so we get in this big conversation, and finally he says, can I tell you something really, really strange? And I said, sure. And he said, since I became a Christian, I feel like the world turned color. And he said, don't get me wrong. Like, I could see colors before, but there's just so much color now that when I walk in a park and I see the blades of grass and the leaves in the tree, I, like, I know where it all came from and who made it. And then he says, is that normal? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yes, I think that it is. Uh, and I wished in my heart to have more of that kind of fresh Uh, Christian joy at uh, the wonder of all things uh, of God working around us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you again for this this story, beautiful and broken, that you have made us a part of. Um, I pray that you would, even in the midst of our longings and brokenness, give us great joy and satisfaction and delight in um, who you are and what it means to be made in your image. Give us hope for the future. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.